With 80 plus episodes in the vault and more than $3 million in total compensation increases received by The Secrets Village, KP and PR are still dropping jewels. Secrets continues to validate that you are not crazy with the challenges faced in trying to reach and exceed your career aspirations. A listener describes Secrets as helping to pinpoint areas I need to develop in conversations I never knew I needed to hear. And season five will definitely not disappoint as they continue to deliver secrets on how to advocate for yourself, how to become a better ally, and how to increase your market value by building generational wealth. Your hosts, Keith Powell and Ricky Robinson, have paid their dues to reach the top of corporate America, and they want to share their stories with you to transform your journey. And this groundbreaking podcast challenges you, as well as corporate America, to be better and do better. KP and PR will bring you more tips and tricks on how to advance your career. So fill up those cups and welcome to season five. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Secrets. KP, what is happening? What's going on in your world, my brother? Hey, PR, I'm, I'm actually over here still smoking a little bit from that episode we did last week where we talked about all the stuff that's gone on through the summer with the Supreme Court decisions and all of this Trumpy stuff that's moving through the workplace. It's just got me in some kind of way, right? And you know, and it's like, no matter how hard we try, there's always like obstacles that are being put in our way in order to get ahead. And I think about all the people who have stood up over the years and every single day kind of put in the good fight. Proud of people like Bayard Rustin and, and Marsha P. Johnson and Yuri Kochiyama, Cesar Chavez, and so many others that are just out there, have been out there, you know, history makers kind of doing their thing to make sure that the path is clear for all of us. Yeah, you know, some of them folks have been out there in those streets just raising a little hell, you know, right? trying to do the right thing, okay? But look, you're so on point when you said that. And our sister, Elaine Brown, remember that episode, man, well, those two episodes, we had her on the podcast way back in, in season two, I think it was, Keith, there. Yeah, yep, sure it was. And she's on that list as well as somebody who was kicking things up. And then there's a lot of you know, young people out there now to leading Black Lives Matter, Stop the Asian uh, Hate and the Violence, and other movements that will hopefully change things for the better. Again, we know that you can't change anything if you don't do anything about it, especially if you complain, you know, all of the time and don't try to do anything about it. You know, so for us, I think it's one of those things where we want to see actions kind of be put or matched, you know, with some of the aspirations and some of the words. That's right. You know, and since we started this podcast, too, a lot of times we get asked, you know, why are you guys so focused on social justice stuff? What does it actually have to do with the workplace? You know, you need to stay in your lane. We always try and help them. You know, when we hear that, we laugh a little bit because it's like, we're trying to help people see the through line and connect the dots mm-hmm. with them. All of this stuff is related at the end of the day. So if you think about it, you can't be your authentic self if you're constantly in a toxic environment of microaggressions that are going on, right? You can't harvest generational wealth when you're getting paid fractions of the dollar that somebody else is doing the same or even less work than you're doing or being held to different standards of work and what's expected of them at the end of the day in order to get promoted. It's just crazy. And I can't be my best when I'm dealing with all this political and public health and microeconomic factors that are going on in the world that have disproportionately impacted me and my family at the end of the day. So it's all connected. So that's why we be talking about social justice so much. Look, Keith over here, Pastor, Pastor Powell, you know, over here <laughs> dropping this knowledge, man. I need to go pass that collection plate, pass that collection plate, you right. know, around. Right. But you are just putting out some great points, you know, KP, and they're all valid. And the fight for social justice and liberation will continue until our country and the world comes to grips with its inhumanity, right? The reality. And think about it. Like we talk about it because we can't escape this shit when we're at work. Folks, the majority is asking us how we feel and asking us for ways that they can kind of show up differently, but things aren't necessarily changing. And today we are just so excited to have a social justice warrior joining us on the show today. Like this is about to get real today. So Todd Belcour is on the show with us today. Todd is an award-winning, you know, attorney and serves as the executive director and co-founder of Social Change. Social Change is a national nonprofit committed to liberation and amplifying community voices through storytelling, 
organizing, and direct action. Look, y'all, the revolution is actually being televised, okay? They believe that one's zip code should be a determinant of your future. So Secrets Village, please, please, please join us in giving a warm welcome to Todd Belcourt to the show today. Brother, thank you for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Both of you good brothers for having me, both for that sermonette to begin everything, to really set the tone, but also for a very kind introduction to you all, Trailblazers. It's really a tremendous honor to be here and joining you all today. And this is going to be a great conversation today. So again, welcome to the show and buckle your seatbelts. Let's go. Yeah, because like in today's episode, we are going to cover quite a few things, right? We're going to talk to Todd about his story and his career journey, because again, as we said, attorney by trade, you know, and now he's leading this uh, wonderful organization. We'll explore how to get inspired to start social change and move into social justice work. We'll talk about that inspiration. We'll also provide some receipts on how embracing social causes can influence change. And then lastly, as we always do, we'll close out with secrets from Todd on how to engage in social change and how companies can create more equitable workplaces for their employees. Yeah, so this will be a good one. So Todd, we always like to start out with our listeners by just getting to know you a little bit, getting under the hood, how you grew up, where you came from, how you, how'd you get where you're at kind of thing. So why don't you tell us a little bit about who's Todd? Absolutely. Long before I was a lawyer that's known for winning awards and all that, I was just a kid on the South Side, grew up with a single mother. She raised myself and our three siblings by herself largely in Dearborn Homes, a housing project not too far from where I actually live now. I'll just, just kind of show you the way gentrification works. I'll get back to that. But we knew poverty. We knew hardship. We knew all the discriminations in the ship's well, unfortunately. That was also, you know, not only training in terms of what the world is really like for too many of us across the nation, but also gave me a training in the importance of love, the importance of determination, resilience, all the things I had a chance to see front and center just by virtue of seeing my mom make miracles happen on a regular basis. I mean, when you have four kids and one requires a wheelchair to get around as a black woman in the city, and you somehow manage to get them all educated, somehow manage to get them all in a position to thrive and succeed, coming from the projects, coming from poverty, the, the deepest of poverty, understanding all the roadblocks that she has to face and the mistreatment she faced, and then all the different mechanisms and systems that made it possible for my oldest brother to function and get around because he's in a wheelchair. And then you know, no real support from the men and the family who, you know, sired these children. So understanding that and seeing that is just, it gave me a real picture of how difficult it can be, but also how much magic can really happen when people are focused and really commit to their faith and commit to their values. And because my mother's fight for me and the way she fought for others and my family has made me want to fight for people the same way. And that's eventually led me to start this nonprofit and do a lot of the kind of social service work that I've been doing since I was a little tyke. Man, I mean, look, that story, man, is, is huge. And it's like, you know, every time we talk, I learn something new. And when you think about the journey that you've gone through and the, the fabric or the DNA that makes Todd who he is, it's no surprise, you know, that you've been able to be as successful as you as you have been. But I have to imagine it was a tough decision for you to make to, because we always ask people in our coaching services, do you want to make money or do you want to help people? You know, like, because young people want to like save the world, you know, at some points, right? But again, there is a fork in the road or a choice that you have to kind of make. So what we want to hear from you about is the decision to whether to chase the money, you know, and have a very comfortable life as an attorney versus moving into social justice work. How did that decision come about for you? and? Do you have any regrets at this point? That's a really important question. I think a few things come to mind that I want to highlight. Although I knew poverty and hardship really well, I actually felt like I had a great child. I was filled with love. We had a lot of fun. I'm sure we didn't have the lights on all the time. I'm sure we didn't have the gas on all the time. So, you know, we'd be huddled up and wearing clothes, four or five layers and all that. But we somehow made the best of that. And so I think what that helped me understand at a young age is, how unimportant money is. I mean, certainly you want these basic necessities, utilities to be on and working and be able to eat regularly, which none of the things we could actually do. Beyond that, realizing how many other people who were struggling the way we were struggling didn't have someone like my mom to fight for them. That's what resonated with me. And that's why I felt like where my calling lay. So yes, I, I mean, I have colleagues who are, you know, 
who I dominated in trial court and dominated in different court settings for making literally a full zero above what I'm making right now. So sometimes it does make you think like, man, but only for a second. Because at the end of the day, the level of fulfillment and the way in which I'm enriched is so, so much more gratifying. Not even saying that just to be kind of, you know, some hopeless romantic about it. It's not easy. I mean, I, certainly I would love to be able to take more vacations. I'd love to be able to take my mom out, do more things that honor her and love her. But I've still been able to do those things just by virtue of sharing our story and doing more work and saving and fundraising, all those things. But uh, at the end of the day, there's nothing more beautiful than knowing that I'm helping people not have to deal with the struggles that I had to deal with growing up. I, you know, providing legal assistance at a timely moment and really changing the trajectory of their and their families' lives forever or changing the law. So millions of people who I never even get a chance to meet will no longer be faced with the same barriers that were keeping them from getting access to quality jobs, education, housing, all those things, or sharing a story, a film that fundamentally changes how people view others in their struggle. Those things to me are, are worth far more than maybe some golden handcuffs and extra 10000 a month, which is nothing to laugh at. That's real money. I understand that. But at the end of the day, I want to be someone that not only makes my family proud in terms of how I spend my money when I get it, but also what I do to get my money in the first place. Yeah, no, that's key. I mean, and I'm thinking about, you know, when you, you talk about having that extra zero or being able to take more vacations. I mean, there is something to be said. And again, we talk about this in other episodes about kind of selling your soul to the devil, right? Like you can be making a lot of money and doing some of those things, but is it as fulfilling as, you know, for Keith and I talking to people who are first generation college students or first generation corporate America, right? And they don't know how to negotiate. They don't know what total compensation is or how to negotiate for it or how to be prepared for an interview or how to ask for what you want, how to actually advocate for yourself. There's something uh, in being able to experience that and provide that for the community. So again, we appreciate, and I know we'll get into it in just a little bit, you know, here, but that decision that you made because you've been able to help so many people with that gift and by you being able to advocate for people. So we appreciate that. But again, Keith and I have one more question for you, Keith, and I'll let you jump in. You know I'm excited about this, so just work with me, brother. Okay, so Keith and I speak regularly about like some of like the unspoken challenges that we face like in corporate America. I mean, there's a whole bunch of unwritten rules that you only find out after you do some of the things. And we want to connect some of those challenges with what you see in your work within social change. Can you speak to a few issues that are going on in the world that would make it hard for people of color and poor people to get a job, keep a job, and just move up the ladder, you know, so to speak? Can you speak to maybe some of those challenges that you see from your perspective? Yeah, and actually one of the things that came to mind, uh, I'll mention earlier in the sermon about how difficult it is to actually be your authentic self. And when you have a climate where you know you tell the same jokes as you do around family and friends and you're as jovial and kind and charismatic, that could actually be seen as a threat just by virtue of you being amazing. So you literally have to bring a shell of yourself, no matter what your qualifications, in order to make other people more comfortable. So imagine functioning in a world like that, where you can average 30 and 10 and you put up 12 and 5, because that's what will make people comfortable enough for you to be in the rooms necessary to get the information, to get the, the leads, to get the network. And build the wealth slowly that you can build much faster if you receive the support you truly deserve, your, your talent requires. There are millions of people dealing with those issues. Uh, what they're saddled with may not necessarily be having to present themselves as a shell of themselves. They're saddled with you know, the discrimination of having a criminal record. They're saddled with the discrimination of simply being brown in America and, and knowing what it's like to be five times more likely to be arrested and also all the negative impact that has on your life for the rest of your life. This is why we fight at social change to increase and expand remedies like sealing and expungement. So people aren't judged for things that are in the past or judged for things they actually didn't even do. And that's something that's happening at an incredible rate. I mean, over 75 million people in this country have a criminal history. And as a result of that, 50% of them are less likely to get a job. They're less likely to get actually promoted and, and entrusted to do the things that we know they're capable of doing. So between that and removing the checkbox from applications is something we fought to successfully do. So people don't have to say, you know, have you ever been convicted of crime? Checking that yes, which is a direct pipeline to the garbage can. All that type of stuff are things that we have to do to ensure 
not that we're giving folks a leg up, just so they can actually be seen for who they are and they actually be appreciated for all the dopeness that they bring and recognize the quality job applicant. I understand there's you know a lot of dangers saying taking race out of the equation because you don't want people to be truly blind. There is no such thing as race blindness. As long as you can see, as long as you can hear, you, you have an idea of what someone's race is. The question is recognizing the struggle that people had to undergo to get to where they are to present themselves before you as an interviewer or as a hiring person. Does that mean anything to you? Does their resilience, is their persistence, is their dogged, no quit, going to get this done no matter what mentality, is that marketable to you? It should be. And too often, employers fail to recognize that and fail to really capitalize on the opportunity before them to hire, promote, and really allow folks to be the face who are worthy of it. So I think when you consider discrimination and the male impact, I'm always surprised to recognize the way in which it actually hurts the bottom line of companies, not only in terms of lawsuits and liability, but in terms of not really investing and trusting the dope and tremendous talents they have right there at their fingertips in terms of black and brown people. So yes, there's discrimination takes place with criminal records. Yes, there's exploitation on the job. Pastor Powell mentioned earlier, he's not a pastor, y'all. Just want me to say, I just want to make sure I don't want to put y'all out here like, well, marry me, pastor. Like, can y'all preside over my wedding? I don't want you to be putting him in that rough spot. But he did mention the importance to be able to bring your authentic self. And a lot of people can't. You can be true to yourself and not, you know, violate your morals, but you can't necessarily feel as comfortable until you're in an environment where you're respected and appreciated for all the different facets of your ability and personality. And a lot of workplaces don't provide that. So discrimination for your past, discrimination for you are at present, and also the concern for how amazing you could be in the future are all different things that impact how you're viewed at work. And that's incredible albatross to carry on a day-to-day basis. Man, we might have to call the fire department all that smoke from that microphone coming over that key. They over there dropping yeah, hot fire, man. He over there killing it. But but it's, it's, it's so true though, it's right? So like he said averaging 30 points a game and 15 rebounds, but now all of a sudden when you go somewhere else and they got you doing 12 points and five, you know. So again, it's recognizing the dopeness that they have, you know, or that we have. And, and being able to be your authentic mm-hmm. self. No, and I agree. And, and Rick and I, we talk a lot about generational wealth and kind of the role that it plays with keeping people in kind of political and economic power in this country. And the things that you just talked about in terms of uh, criminal history and some of those issues that are holding people back. What from kind of a, a systemic kind of an economic level do you see as barriers to preventing certain folks from kind of achieving this generational wealth that's so important in this country? Well, we all know that education is the key to building wealth, but there's so many different barriers preventing people from getting access to the key. Not only is college and higher education just astronomically expensive, even to the extent you can supplement that knowledge through internet and other sources, you still need the network that you normally get from attending these universities, institutions to really level up. So one of the biggest barriers people face aren't only just related to functioning the world and dealing with the criminal justice system and the impact that has on your life, but are you able to actually get into schools that you merit? Are you able to get treated decently and get the financial aid that you, your grades require and, and you, you deserve? Do you have to work two and three jobs to stay in school? And um, do you have to deal with the different stresses related to that? I know when I went to undergrad at Michigan, when my brother passed away while at school, I lost some scholarships as a result. You know, I was despondent, wasn't performing as well. And instead of having an administration that would give time to have pause or take a step back and postpone some of my accreditation until I was ready to return, they allowed me to get D's and lose all sorts of stuff. And then I had to work four or five jobs at a time to raise the 30 plus thousand dollars, which is an incomparable sum when you're 19 years old, just to return to a school that clearly didn't appreciate me enough in the first place that they had the grace and understanding from the D. So it took me seven years to graduate. And that's not an uncommon story. A lot of us are paying our way through school. We're taking on unimaginable debt. And when you're working that much, how are you building the network? How are you leveraging all the different levers and opportunities available at that school? When your experience is wholly different, even when you, you know, do things in the social arena, when you hang out with folks in the Divine Nine and things like even the way your social gatherings are policed and treated are completely different than our white counterparts. All that weighs on you. So I think when it comes down to generational wealth. It's, it's about network. It's about opportunity. It's about education. And it's harder for us to build any of those things because all the barriers are in our way, whether it be the way in which we're treated by the police or even the social barriers that make it more difficult for us to build networks with people who have higher net worth. 
But that's all the more reason why it's social change when we have these events, we have an international film festival, we have our direct action events. It's also about bringing people together, building community, helping people build friendships and relationships that are lasting and meaningful that they can build off of, that they can recommend each other for jobs across sector, that they can get to know firsthand the experience of others and really dismantle some of the stereotypes and some of the, the preconceived notions that people may have because they just don't have the blessing and opportunity of having a diverse network of people to work with. Even going to Michigan, people say, well, why don't you go to Howard? You know, you know they're not going to treat you right over there. And I said, you're probably right. But I do want to make sure I'm, I'm not running away from that. I want to dive into that and learn about it earlier on in my life so maybe I can build up greater resistance to it. So when I do get on further in life, that I'll already be ready, maybe be equipped and have more allies in the struggle who don't look like me. There's a lot of arguments the other side saying, well, about going to Howard, I'd have more of a network, have a, a better foundation, I'd have more people who could support me and, and look out for me. And that's true, too. There's a lot of people who went to Michigan that did not recover from the kind of onslaught of the micro and macro aggressions that you face and things like that. So I definitely recommend when youth that are, are considering educational opportunities that they also take time out. Not that this is Europe, but consider, you know, working for a year between 18 and 19, three hours as you really want. So you're not necessarily just diving into school because everyone's doing it, spending that $50,000 trying to figure out where your life is, but also the additional maturation that you get. So you can appreciate the opportunity that it is a bit more. I think by the time I got back into school, I was able to take, you know, 19, 20 credits at a time. So I was really trying to graduate. I was just a completely different student. My focus was uh, really pretty strong and I was really more focused about learning and building networks and that's really it's about it more than you know doing well is important you got to get the good grades but do the professors know you do the the administrators know you do the major and prominent alum know you and are you learning things not just are you scoring well are you actually learning about history are you learning about grammar in a way are you learning about math and things that you can take with you that really can make you stand out in comparison to other people regardless of your grades Man, I mean, that's, that's huge. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking through, you know, when I was deciding which school I was going to go to and what I wanted to do and how you want to do it. And it's just, I think it's important to have these discussions because you can recall, like, most of the times for us being first generation college students, you didn't really have anybody to talk to. Like, we're talking to each other and we hadn't even been to school yet. So we're trying to figure it out and how many mistakes you make along the way. You know, whether it's getting that free water bottle because you're filling out the, to try to get the credit card right. in the student union, right? <laughs> or if it's like... <laughs> I got about three of them that way, right? <laughs> yeah, you're in debt and you don't, you can't even recite what you spent the damn money on. You know what I'm saying? Or you having to work so many different jobs, you know, to be able to just to get to class, but you're tired by the time you get there. You can't hang out and go to some of those events like you spoke of. So I think that's just a key, you know, story that you share there and it just kind of gave me a little bit of PTSD as I'm thinking about like, wow, you know, when I started, I was in the red. You know, when I got out of college, I was in the red versus some of my friends who I did go to school with were in the black and could take a, a year and study abroad or try to figure it out. Like I was like, I had to like, they was about to ask for that money back. <laughs> you know, I had to start making payments, you know, so we have to figure that stuff out, man. I have a question for you. I mean, at Social Change, you do this great, you know, film festival called Change Fest. I mean, you, you spoke about it, you know, uh, briefly there. And moving forward, KP and I and the rest of the Secrets Village, we are all over, you know, this uh, Change Fest, right? We are going to be up in there sponsoring and taking part. But it highlights the voices of marginalized people, right? I mean, this is just huge to be able to dedicate, you know, uh, something to it. Why is it important? I know you spoke on it just a little bit there, but why is it important from your point of view for our people to be able to share their stories? I mean, we're sharing stories now and just think about how we've been able to share those later. But in your opinion, why is it important at Change Fest to be able to share those stories? Absolutely. One of my best friends, uh, Emil Cambria Jr., a Haitian fellow and myself decided it was really important to create a platform for us to tell our stories, not just us being brown people, but us being marginalized people. And it got to the point even over a decade ago where we knew we couldn't really trust the news to share our stories. And we couldn't even trust a lot of film festivals. I mean, film festivals, unfortunately, and without calling anybody by name, I can speak more generally, they look at the budget of the film to determine whether or not they choose the film. Yeah. We've gotten pressed out by a lot of filmmakers talking about, I can't believe you didn't choose this. I'm like, well, I'm sorry. It's not about you spending $2 million to produce it. It's about, does it move us? Does it communicate a societal ail? Does it 
that want that? What does it make people want understand something they didn't otherwise understand? And does it make them want to do something about it? And those are our measures. Of course, we, we take cinematography and directing and all that stuff into account. But this is a social change film festival. And we need to make sure that we're telling truths. We're really disarming a lot of stereotypes and helping people really understand what's really happening in the lives of people across the world. And most importantly, we've got to be inspiring people to do something about it and pairing that inspiration and that new understanding with real opportunities that address the issues in the film. So that's the entirety of the experience at Change Fest in terms of the nuts of it. But we understand, I mean, we have a social world, so we have to make sure that we're making it fun, we're making it sexy, we're making it live. So we have you know, live painting, entertainment, DJs, red carpet, liquor sponsors, all that stuff. So it's a great time. But the goal is to get people who aren't normally involved in social justice movements to come out. And you can't do that just by saying it's social justice or bust. It's also come have a good time. Come meet some good people. Come um, network with actors, directors, influencers, people that may be helpful to you in whatever career you're interested in. Whatever brings people there, we want it to be as many different levers and draws as possible. But we want people all to leave with the desire to do something and the real opportunity to do something to address a lot of issues, whether it be related to discrimination or workers' rights, women's rights, human rights, environment, whatever. We have films on those topics, and we're excited to really showcase it. And it's coming up around the corner, October 1st. It'll be in Chicago, L.A., and Atlanta. So, of course, the secret team is actually the first to hear some of this good news. They get people on these couches, y'all. They just tell your whole world, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. We there. We, we there. Got you. We, That's right. Yeah, we are there. We represent we be in perfect attendance, but we don't miss out. When they do roll call, they're going to be like, uh, Ricky, a present? <laughs> yeah, I'm here. You said everything Ricky needed to hear. Liquor sponsor. So yeah. he's good. He's good. <laughs> Food, everything. Music. Yeah, man. I, I might come with a tent. <laughs> no, that's awesome. And I agree with you. I mean, when you hear these stories, I mean, that humanizes people, right? And makes that connection and hopefully inspires people to get involved. So that, that work you're doing with the film festival is really, really important. And one final question that, that we have for you, because I now I just want to kind of tie some of the things that we've been talking about, you know, tie some of these things that you've been talking about, bring it together, bring it home for people. And I know at Social Chains, you talk a lot about liberation. Mm -hmm. And people hear that word, but I'm not sure they quite know what that actually means. So could you kind of, from your perspective, define what liberation is and then what it would look like for marginalized people in the workplace if we were to actually achieve you know, that liberating moment. Yeah, you're right. Uh, liberation is a word that means a lot of different things to different people. I mean, even in the context of our board, you know, we were trying to figure out what our statement's going to be to describe what we are in a sentence. I a question about whether we should use liberation. It can be kind of loaded. It is loaded. And it is operating from, I mean, by the way, is like you can't say you're free when our elders are scared to leave their home because they're worried about violence. You can't say we're free when our kids are scared to go to school because they're worried about being shot and killed. You can't say we're free when only certain ethnicities are worried about police stopping them and not the indications of not even being free, but just simply existing. So if we recognize that there's a persistence of these issues where people just feel not only not free, but completely traumatized and in many ways debilitated, we have to remove those barriers. We have to do what we can to take the scales off of people's eyes so we can see what's really going on. But more importantly, address the issues responsible for perpetuating this poor treatment. And I think that's what we're engaged in in social change. The stories are help, intended to help people like open their eyes and really walk in the shoes of other people. And the direct action opportunities are to help people really see on the ground, you know, what's actually happening. So it's one thing to watch it in the film. It's another thing to go into a community that's hard hit with food insecurity or health disparities or whatever issues may arise and provide a pop-up health clinic, a pop-up legal clinic, a pop-up farmer's market, and see firsthand what that need looks like. And then going beyond that, realizing you can't just be having farmer's markets and, and free health clinics forever. You need to find more ways to remove the barriers so people can do whatever they need for themselves and their families. And until you do that, then people are reliant. That's not freedom. So that's why we need to remove these barriers that prevent people from fulfilling the potential, not only the ones relating to, you know, stereotypes and allowing people can average 30 and 10 to do so without any sort of shame and you know, without having to kind of cower under the concern of 
being too strong and beautiful and amazing, but also making sure more people realize they have an aptitude to average 30 and 10, and giving people the space to dream, give people out of the survival mode so they can actually think about what they want to do in the next 5, 10, 15 years. I mean, it's not just about our youth dreaming. A lot of our parents stop dreaming when they're 20, 30, 40, 50, but there's no reason to. Your ability doesn't stop until you stop. So it's, you know, making sure people realize that they have the ability, inspiring that way, but also removing these barriers that are preventing them. There are true locked doors and giving them the keys so they can take back their lives and have that true freedom. Look, this is just such an intriguing conversation on so many different levels, you know, here. And we're just so appreciative of you sharing your story, you know, with us and in, in your perspective. But this is the part of the show when we probably navigate into verifying or validating that we're not crazy. Like we didn't just come up with this topic. We didn't just get into this relationship with our brother Ty Belcourt and social change. There are some receipts out there that talk about why he's doing the work that he's doing and why we are so dogmatic about like making sure that you know about it. So today we're going to share some receipts on how embracing social causes can actually influence change. So Keith, why don't you hit us with the first receipt? Yeah, well, first we just wanted to kind of set the stage around philanthropic giving and and how that actually all shapes out. And according to a report, Giving USA 2021, the annual report on philanthropy for the year 2020, it reported that individuals, bequests, foundations, and corporations gave an estimated $471.44 billion to U.S. charities in 2020. So this ain't a money issue. <laughs> At the end of the day, there's a lot of money that's going to charity and giving to religious, educational and human service causes led the way with over 265 billion given to these charitable organizations. The real question that we like to challenge and, and really curious about is where is that money actually going? And it is actually getting to the people who deserve it most. And so that's where we're going to dive a little bit deeper here. Yep. So we're going to keep peeling back this onion. So that's an incredible figure. You know, there we're talking 470 billion with a B, not an M. A B, right? That's more than some countries are even through countries. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, that's ridiculous. That's crazy. Yeah, but you're right. It's not about the magnitude of the investments, about the magnitude of the impact. And I think one of the reasons why we've been growing and people are really starting to pay more attention to social change is the amount of work that we get done per dollar is really incredible. And I think, you know, you're talking about changing systems, you're talking about feeding people, you're talking about giving out millions of pounds of food, thousands of vaccines changing 30 plus laws, providing over a thousand legal assistance, all that stuff. You're like, oh my God, how much is your budget? It's like, our budget's less than a million dollars. It's like, how the hell does that happen? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. It's, it's because, you know, of the way in which we engage in our purpose-filled work, but also because we invest smartly, uh, because we're led by people who understand what it's like to be on the ground in that struggle. Mm. And we listen to people who are on the ground and directly impacted in that struggle. We're not you know, watching the any of the news channels or reading the first few pages of New York Times or Wall Street Journal, figure out how we should attack poverty, how we should attack racism. We know already because we've lived it, we've endured it. Yeah. So the reason why we're so impactful is because we know from firsthand experience and we listen to people who have firsthand experience on what they need and we trust them and we give them what they need and we watch the beautiful things that happen. And a lot of organizations simply don't do that, but they still get rewarded because they've been around for a while. They're the institutions, they're the dinosaurs. But like dinosaurs, you know, they are on their way out. But <laughs> not that we want them to be, Like we work with organizations that are some of our older uh, perennial organizations and encourage them and, and co-partner with them. And we have no secrets. We, whatever our secret sauce is, it's, it's on the website. You know, <laughs> it's mm -hmm. everyone to do this because we want more people to be helped and served and saved, frankly. A lot of organizations, yeah, there's, well, we're on secret, so I might as well say it. I think there's something to be said for organizations that give some corporations the comfort of knowing they've given to help, you know, black or brown people without knowing that they're making black and people truly stronger. Yeah. 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 You got yeah. it. Performative. Got we it. talk about the performative nature, That's you right. know, what this looks like. So this is, this is huge. So check this out. Receipt number two, you know, for us, the two thirds of households give money to charity with giving averaging 4% of their income. Like, so, so that's a huge, huge number, right? According to a joint study from the uh, W.K. Kellogg Foundation, 
and Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors, nearly two-thirds of Black households donate to community-based organizations and causes to the tune of $11 billion each year. Black households on average give away 25% more of their income per year than whites do. You recall the average net worth of white people is 10 times that of Black people. <laughs> Yet, Black people are giving away more, which is crazy. Right. We put you know, it on the field, the put it on the line. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of reasons for that as you think about your own families and all of that stuff, you know, there and how you've uh, been conditioned, you know, to give. But again, as we start going from the funnel and getting this down to the spout, you know, here you see that there is more to this, you know, here. You're saying that, you know, you're really hitting the nail on the head. I mean, there's a huge difference between donating and sacrificing. Yeah. And people are sacrificing on a regular basis, whether they're giving to Jesus, you know, at the mm -hmm. church, nonprofits and things like that. What they're doing means they won't be able to get the food that they may necessarily need. They may not have to be able to pay the, their bill on time, whatever. That's the strength of their faith and their belief in what they're giving to. That means something. Certainly, we are a grassroots organization. We're grateful that we get these $25 a month donations or $100 a month donations because we know those are folks who are really scraping the barrel to provide that. So we take pride in not only receiving it, but we also take pride in making them proud and saying that's who, that's who they give to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you're right. At the end of the day, it's like what God has given us has really been because of the strength and the love and sacrifice of everyday people. And some really forward-thinking foundations, frankly. I have to make sure I shout out Focus for Health and even Blue Cross Blue Shield, organizations like that, AIDS Healthcare Foundation, for recognizing the work and we do in a way which addresses not just, you know, whether people can work, get people to get housing, whether people can function, but it changes health outcomes. It makes people live longer, happier, better quality of life. And that's something we all need to be fighting for and striving for. And I'm not certain that all nonprofits who claim to be doing so are doing everything they can to do that. But that being said, I'm grateful for us to have the opportunity to do that we're doing. I don't think anyone should be taking money away from any other nonprofit. I'm saying in addition to what you're giving to them, give to us as well. Watch the money work for you. No, it's so true. And you're right, just building off of that part about the church, you know, receipt number three gets to this point where Black donors don't just give to the church, right? Their largesse generally falls into three categories. One called Cornerstone, which is given to higher education in the arts. Second is called Kinship, which is donating to organizations serving the Black community, you know, organizations like yours. And then the Sanctified, which is supporting the churches at the end of the day. And this is all according to Giving Black Boston, a report that was done by the nonprofit New England Blacks in Philanthropy. But it just shows, and I think all three of us could speak to this, where it's, yes, the church is going to get some money, but we also trying to donate to organizations that directly impact our community. And education is such a foundational piece of, uh, of our upbringing in terms of that's what's going to open the door and provide the opportunities for us. So we give to all of those causes. And as you say, we're making a sacrifice. We're not donating. We're making a sacrifice. But not only are we putting money on the table, we're putting time in also a lot yeah. of times uh, right. with these things. Yeah. You know, to that point, Keith, I mean, there's probably one more that I know that we're keeping it above board with receipt number three. But we're also donating to family, right? To some of the family that you're investing in, right? And it's like, you can't write that off on your taxes, <laughs> you know, when you're giving that, you know, to the family. So that's another part of that sacrifice that we're doing there is trying to like uplift our family and family, friends or community in that way. And again, it's unique as we're talking about how we're conditioned, <laughs> you know, here in terms of how giving and creating the change that we want to see. Yeah, Ricky, I think that's an important fourth category. And even thinking about that just kind of overwhelms me. I mean, you talk about people who come from other countries and they, they give remittances. You know, they squirrel away money and send it back to Mexico or send it back to Africa or send it back to whoever, you know, their home country or home continent may be. But we're doing that right here in the South Side of Chicago. We're doing that right here in Baltimore or D.C. I mean, uh, when your cousins need something, when your mom needs something, when your siblings need something, they know the, the family members who are kind of, quote unquote, doing all right. That's who they lean on. Your niece needs to go to this cool opportunity in D.C. and they're kind the of money and they don't think it's opportunity. You know how important it is for people to travel, young people to open their eyes and get these experiences. So you find a way to get that $750 <laughs> yeah. together. And for them to go, again, that's sacrifice. That's not 
25,000 in my account. So yeah, I can throw 750. That's, I had 800, so I'm gonna throw 750 because I know how important this is this young lady. I want her to grow and shine and thrive. And I'll have to figure out what I'm gonna do for the rest of the month and take my lady out on a date and all those other things. So that's a real and significant piece, but that's also part of generational wealth. You can't do it just by yourself. You have to plant seeds. You have to invest in our loved ones, our young ones, not just our young ones, but also our elders. I mean, they deserve some comfort. They deserve to feel loved and appreciated after all they sacrificed and done. You know, I've sent my mother to Africa a couple of times, you know, to, to go visit and go to the Holy Land and things. And that was literally my entire social budget for six months, you know? Yeah. yeah. But after all she's done for us, all she's done for my family, all she's done for me, how can I not, you know, when she's excited and wants to go on this trip with the church or whatever, put whatever money I can together and make sure she can enjoy that aspect of her life. But that's an additional pressure. There's no question. That means that's $10,000 I'm not putting my 401k that's going to be worth 500000 by the time I retire in 35 years. You know, it's it's a real sacrifice. And I think it's important for that to be part of the calculus in determining and showing how loving and giving of people we are. Not just spending on Jordans, all the way we spend in our communities. That really means it sets us apart, Joe's, how much we love by giving. This is huge. So check this out. So our last receipt, you know, for the day comes from a mental health blog called Very Well Mind. And it pointed out that engaging in advocacy or activism volunteering efforts allows BIPOC people to experience some semblance, you know, of control when white supremacist harms can often leave those impacted feeling helpless and hopeless. We can all attest to this. Finding community with people with like experiences can help BIPOC people cope with mental health trauma. Because it's something to be said when you're not the only one going through something that you can talk to someone and they're like, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. But if you can't embark in this advocacy or this volunteerism and you can't talk to other people who've gone through some of the same things that you've gone through, Therein lies you you having this extra weight on your shoulders and not being able to get it out, you know, there. So, again, that's receipt number four for us. Mm -hmm. No, that's exactly right. You see this when you think about voting rights and things about like that. I mean, you think about the black women standing up and literally carrying this country through the finish line on so many issues all the time because it's just like, all this white supremacy is weighing me down, so I got to get out in the streets and do something about it to solve the issue. And that's really what this is all about. It's like, you got to do it just to keep your mind straight and keep you from going crazy. <laughs> right. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's almost like you forced them to doing it and acting just to have some sanity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. And so when people say, you know, why do you do this activism work? It's self-care for me, knowing that I'm doing what I can to not be you know, well-adjusted to injustice. I can't get comfortable with all the discomfort and the abuse and exploitation out here. I mean, I'm grateful that my physical vision isn't the best, but like, you know, my ability to not look away when I see struggle is something I really hold dear to my heart. It's something I'm really grateful God has given me the ability to do. It's when I see our people, and uh, you know, homeless, and everyone who's homeless happens to look like us. When I see people when I go to jails and prisons, how many of them look like us when I see people are struggling, you know, black farmers and wherever it may be, or even people in the financial sector who are being discriminated against and working in that context and some of the mediation work that I do, it's apart from social change. It's, it's important for me in order to kind of help relieve the stress of all that, to know that I'm doing something about it, uh, not allowing the issues of the past and the faces of the past to be the faces and issues of the future. So one of the things we do at Social Change, I think is really important to our work, is we provide these trainings to really mm -hmm. untangle kind of all the preconceived notions and demystify what it means to create change. It's, it's really just about being polite and persistent. It's not about having advanced degrees. It's not about whether you speak in, you know, old English or anything crazy like that, or, you know, you can decipher these complex statutes. It's none of the above. It's just about finding something that you're pissed off about and committing to do something about it with people who care about it as well. And we provide as many lanes, as many issues, as many subject areas, and opportunities people get involved. And you find you build a little community there. You find build a tribe there. And we stand out from other organizations, but we are truly a rainbow coalition. I mean, yes, we fight for black and brown communities, but we also fight for all marginalized communities. And that could even be distressed white people as well who are being mistreated and abused. And it's important that people recognize 
all skin folk ain't kin folk. You know, it's like you, you know you can't always assume just because someone shares a, your hue that they share your your struggle or they share your your love for humanity. You know, you have to make sure you're also careful as you're telling people not to stereotype that you're not doing the same. But also, to the extent even people do fulfill stereotypes, that you're willing to to have enough grace, to have enough love, to embrace people all the same and see what you can do to really get to the bottom of that and maybe break some of that down. We spend a lot of time in the context of our legislative work engaging in policy advocacy with folks for all sides of the aisle. And we get a lot of flack for that. Why don't you just spend the time with the Black Caucus, the Latino Caucus, just spend time with them. It's like, I could spend time with them, but you know, it's more important to me that we have majority of people voting on this, <laughs> not just the people who may have some understanding already, because that's how you get laws passed, you need the majority. Until you get that understanding, until you get more people to understand our common humanity and how these issues impact all of us, all communities, all hues, you're not really doing your job as an advocate, I think. Again, that's what makes it different. Some people call us Uncle Tom for that, for example, for you know engaging and talking with uh, folks of all backgrounds. Some people call us too radical for that. So at the end of the day, you have to do it, make sure your heart feel right, and which actually leads to real results. And we provide as many opportunities for people to do that as possible. The worst thing you can do is complain. Complaining is not a strategy. Hope is not a strategy. Get involved. Get closer to the work that's being done that actually creates change and see where you can fit in. There's, there's space for everybody under this tent, at least that social change. I love you know your point in terms of not getting comfortable with injustice, you know, and some of those things. I love it. And this is, again, where we navigate into like the secrets where we, again, I, th- I think you've been dropping gems this whole time, you know, in terms of how to change the scenario or how to become involved. But we're going to go just a little bit deeper, you know, here before we end the episode and talk about, you know, we're going to share some secrets with you today. And we have a bit of a double dose of those secrets today. So today, Todd will help us by providing three secrets on how you can engage in social change. And we'll then close out with three additional secrets from Todd on what companies you know, can do to make the workplaces more equitable. So Todd, how can people get involved in advocating for change? What are three things that you can uh, come up with uh, for our secrets community? Yeah, I mean, the easiest thing is the low hanging fruit. What are you comfortable doing? It's easy for you to give money, give money. It's easy for you to give time, give time. It's easy for you to spread the word and Make sure people are being connected and networked with the people that can help them amplify their work. Do those things. But I think you'll get the most benefit. I think I actually have the most transformation value for you if you do the things that make you uncomfortable. So first, start with the comfortable things. Give, give time, give money, give connections, network. But the third is you know, roll your sleeves up. Get in there. Get closer to the work. See what these nonprofits you're giving to are doing. Not to audit and you know, scrutinize. But to be involved, let them know that they have more hands on deck, that they have more expertise, more people who care or willing to take the time out and be on the front lines. Because what's happening, people on the front lines are just like anything else. You know, front lines of war, people are we're losing people. People are just getting burnt out. People are passing away. People are, are having families and all sorts of things that are taking their time away. So while they're still committed, they can't put the same amount of time in. And we need people who can give people breaks, who can kind of spell people and give their uh, moments break so they know they can rest easy knowing, well, I'm not there today, but Brother Ricky's there, so I feel good, so I can watch my baby without having to be, you know, glued to my phone, so I can be really invested into my family and my mom and my lady and my little baby and everything like that, and not be wishing I was over there because I think the whole moon is going to fail in my absence. Those are real concerns, unfortunately, so it's important to also do the second thing, which is make yourself a little more uncomfortable. Get off the couch. If there's a volunteer opportunity, say yes, I'll meet you there. If not, if there's something you want to do virtually, call the people up that you know are organizing stuff. Say, hey, how can I help in a deeper way? And brainstorm. Use your creative abilities together to come up with something that could be really impactful and meaningful. And you'd be surprised how much it means to someone who's doing a lot of this heavy lifting for someone just to come and just take some of the burden off their shoulders without even asking, or how can I best help you? People may even be paused and completely shocked by the question. But give them time to digest it and recognize that you mean it when you ask it. And you'd be surprised what can happen and grow from there. And the third thing is, you know, I know a lot of people say, well, I have black friends, I have white friends, I have gay friends, whatever. I mean, it's really important in this polarized society that we live in, and I can't stress this enough, I probably should even live with this, to just really take these stereotypes out of your mind. Recognize, identify them what they are, don't run away from them but recognize them and put them on, on the shelf somewhere 
and, and still engage people as humans and give them every chance to be their authentic self as well. Because what's happening as we're carrying ourselves as a shell of ourselves, there's a lot more people feel the same way for different reasons. People are scared to say all, a whole range of words just because they don't want their ignorance to, to make them look like a racist. And we're all ignorant to some degree. There's a lot of things we don't know just as soon as by virtue of being human and having limited knowledge. Uh, but let's make sure that we're allowing everyone a chance in the space to make mistakes, to learn, to grow, and to build friendships, real relationships with you. And that's one of the things that we take pride in, not only the diversity of the folks of our workforce, but also diversity of our volunteer pool. And the reason why we have such a diverse volunteer pool is because we don't push people away when they make mistakes. Instead of calling people out, we call them in and say, hey, you hurt this king's feelings, this queen's feelings with this, this, and whatever. This is why you just want to make sure you know so you have a chance to change that and apologize for it. We're not pushing you out the family, we're not pushing out the tent, we're actually bringing you closer. So you can then have the support you need to not only change your behavior, but be the ambassador, be the evangelist to tell other people like you who think like you, why they shouldn't be doing the same thing. Because we're trying to raise as many credible messages as we can. And you can't do that if you're only creating a, a monolith of folks, folks who look the same way, talk the same way. We need people who look like everyone and talk like everyone so we can talk to everyone and convert everyone to this movement for justice. And that's one way you can, you can do it. Just kind of build these relationships, recognize the stereotypes, put them aside, and forge through a grace and love and see what can happen from that. I love it. I love it. I mean, just, you know, finding people's humanity, because we all have humanity and finding where those connection points of humanity are. And those restorative practices that you were talking about, too, is like, we all make mistakes. But that doesn't mean you just throw them out the window because you disagree or you made a mistake. You find some way to restore that relationship. And so that was great. Great advice. And what advice would you have for companies in terms of how they can make their work environments more equitable for marginalized folks? Ooh. <laughs> well, um, that's an hour in and of itself. I mean, having the opportunity to work with companies, even try to shape policy internally and on a, on a state national level as it relates to kind of employee, employee relationships. The first thing you have to do as an employer is create a space for employees to really take charge and, and control and transform the culture of a place not lip service, not just having one brown person doing diversity and inclusion, but literally allow them to have space to say what they need to feel comfortable, to feel safe, to feel supported, and activate that. That sounds so simple, but it's remarkable how few organizations are willing to truly engage in it. They talk about it. I've been brought in to speak to certain groups, and I've actually said I wasn't going to speak to any groups anymore. They're not interested in improving and doing anything different. I don't want to just take money to speak and talk about the same issues. There has to be progress. There has to be a real commitment to progress. And the other thing is, is certainly, you know, changing the culture while people are there, but what are organizations and businesses doing to build a pipeline as well? But what can you do as a company to make sure more of the diverse folks you say you can't find have some pipelines, some mechanism to go from wherever they are in the world to a place at your company? If it's in the financial services place, are you doing anything to make sure people are getting support they need for their series exams and all the things that they may need? If you're working in the, the medical setting, what are you doing to talk to people about the importance of who have, you know, interest in math and science and pursuing that and, and how they can get the support they need every step away from high school on to become nurse practitioners, doctors, nurses, whatever. There are different types of things in the tech industry that, that are being done to some degree that need to be done and modeled in every major industry, and they aren't. Instead, they kind of got their binder full of minority sort of candidates, and, you know, and they're saying, well, I can't pull this from this firm, I can't pull this person from that firm, so we're out of candidates. But that crisis and the lack of imagination seems to be only, only distinctly related to hiring African-American and, and brown people, you know what I'm saying? Everything else, they know how to problem solve and be creative thinkers and think outside the box on but when it comes to actually diversifying their work pool, it's like they're always bereft of ideas. There's some intentionality behind that. There's no other way to interpret it. There's a discomfort that comes when you have a certain number of brown people in the space. It's always been like in this nation. But what happens is after people get comfortable with that, then they can't imagine a world without it. That's how it works. And that's where we're trying to get people past and companies past that tipping point. When they're like, oh my God, the black people multiply what I'm going to do to 
oh, now I have got black friends. I'm invited to cookouts now. You know what I'm saying? Like it's it's a different life, and it, and that's how it should be when you have that diversity, and and not only in terms of how it's represented at work, but in your social life. Life is more rich, and that's what where people are aren't just saying, but it's proven. So we're trying to help people understand that operational mindset and just walk the talk and. That's kind of a leap right now, but it's coming, and it's it's coming sooner and later because a lot of the younger generation is not accepting anything else but that. But we're still waiting for some of the gray hairs to get their minds right. Man, look, Secrets Village, we told y'all that we was not going to be messing around in season five, okay? And, Todd, we sincerely, sincerely appreciate you being with us today. I mean, it was just so many gems, so much valuable content, you know, dropped today. How can your new Secrets Village get in contact with you on social media or bring you to their companies for any speaking engagements? How can they get involved with you? Absolutely. The easiest way to get in touch with me is just to email me at Todd at socialchange.site. That's Todd with two Ds at socialchange, one word, that site, like website. But folks are comfortable on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Please follow us, Shy Social Change, not shy like timid, but shy like Chicago. Shy Social Change, that's our, our main hub. And we have other smaller hubs throughout different states, but that's the one that has the most action and energy. And that's a good way to kind of plug in and just follow and passively kind of see all the cool things going on across the nation that we're working on. But the third way that I recommend people reach out is LinkedIn. I know this is probably a crowd that everyone's got a LinkedIn profile. That's something that I, I check regularly, and I think it's an important mechanism for our folks to exchange ideas and network and build relationship. Please reach me there. Again, just Todd Belcourt is only one of me, for better or for worse. So uh, <laughs> check us out at Shy Social Change. Email me, Todd, at Social Change site, or message me on LinkedIn. Our website is socialchange.site. For people who still look at websites, we got a good one. A lot of people just kind of work with us through Facebook or Instagram, whatever, but um whatever you need for us to kind of build a relationship and help you understand uh, how easy it is to get involved and it's moving for change, I'm happy to do. But the other end of it is, well, um, we're looking for more people who are naysayers. If you feel like this doesn't make sense for you, or, uh, this is something that you are ever be interested in, we're even more inclined to talk to you because you'd be surprised how much this work is actually made for people just like you. And you just don't know it yet. So no matter what your beliefs are, no matter what your thoughts are about the current status of society, Give me a chance to chat with you. Let's see what we can build. That's awesome. We need to get a chapter out here in the, in the Bay. <laughs> so, for sure. And you can find more resources on our Secrets website, secrets.com. We'll have all of those contact uh, information that Todd just shared in our show notes for the episode. So be sure to check that out. Yeah, and Todd, I would also want to um, just extend my gratitude for you being on Secrets today. I mean, we really appreciate you being just so real authentic and willing to share your journey with us, you know, on secrets. You are officially in the secrets village now. Okay. Uh, like we, you got to be careful what you ask for, because, you know, we will absolutely call on you, man, because we're just in love with people who want to be, you know, part of the solution here. So for all of you listening, help your brothers out by writing a review on Apple or Spotify, joining us on our LinkedIn group and commenting on our post on all of your favorite social media channels. Those comments actually do help us out an awful lot. And again, it helps you become a thought leader also when you're adding your points out there. And also check out our merchandise. Go to the goods on our website. We're always updating our gear. So so check that out. And y'all know that PR and I are all about helping you get that coin. To date, we have helped our people get over $4 million in total compensation increases since we launched Secrets two years ago. And you know we want to get to at least 50. We, we try, we're going to keep hustling. We done doubled the number in like the last four months alone. So we're hustling for you. So be sure to call on us, tap into the network, sign up for executive coaching, make a referral if you know somebody that needs help. We are happy to help in any way we can to help raise the bar and get our people their coin. Yeah, look, once again, I know I've I said it again, but I'm just I'm, I'm cheesing from ear to ear here. Thanks uh, again, Todd, for being on the show with us today. I'm over here about to gear up and 
and hit those streets for some justice myself, you know, over here. But right. I might be a little tipsy from that uh strong pour that Keith had for me a little earlier today. Okay, so I might need to rest for a minute. But again, we're so appreciative of the Secrets Village. It's us being able to to compete, you know, inside and us being able to help each other out. So we want to make sure that we continue to be these warriors, you know, for you and warriors for the community, you know, to. So just remember Secrets Family until the next time everyone understand. Thank you for listening to Secrets. And remember, when we share, you transform. Peace. Peace, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed yet another episode of Secrets. In fact, one listener said that with Secrets, I learned new, actionable information listening to KP and PR. I enjoy the balance of data with the testimony of real experience, and we hope you agree. If you are motivated and excited after listening to Keith and Ricky, please show these brothers some love. Subscribe and write a review on our podcast. And last, but certainly not least, elevate your professional game by signing up for our executive coaching services. Check us out at www.secrets.com to get more information about our secret services. Remember, when we share, you transform. Until next time, cheers.